They're certainly stretching our physics understanding in many ways. Uh, first of all, they are very dense objects. There's a solar mass of material in a ball that's 10 kilometers radius. So the density is phenomenal and the physics is staggering. I think it took a bit of persistence to, first of all, find the things. You know, I, I had miles of paper chart, literally. Uh, and this first signal was occupying about a quarter inch. So it's a very tiny part of the full thing. Persistent, careful work. Hello and welcome to another fascinating episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring yours truly, Brian Keating, Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the University of California, San Diego. And I bring to you interviews with luminaries, brilliant brains, magnificent minds from a constellation of creative, curious geniuses. And I'm so blessed today to have on the podcast none other than Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell who is a hero to millions around the world. She's one of the few people living today that's discovered a new class of astronomical objects. In this case, she discovered pulsars. But these pulsars weren't initially recognized for what they are. They were thought to be little green men, signatures of an alien extraterrestrial intelligent species, perhaps. In fact, she gave them the initials LGM to denote the fact that these could be possible signatures because they are so periodic, so regular, so repetitive, repetitive, that they seem to be the byproduct of technology. After all, the best timekeeping devices that we have on Earth are made by human beings with intelligence. So in this case, she was maybe a little bit dismayed to not find discovery or evidence for an extraterrestrial civilization. But instead, the magnetized dead core of a, of a neutron star, a magnetized, very highly magnetic star that puts out a pulse of light that we can see throughout the cosmos using telescopes. Uh, and like the kind that she built. So she's an experimental astronomer. She actually built the telescope, the radio telescope that was used to detect these objects for the first time. And unlike yours truly, she truly did uh, perhaps lose a Nobel Prize that she deserved. In fact, the Nobel Prize for the discovery of these objects went to her PhD advisor. You'll find out about that and the story behind that as we go on in this interview. But she has no remorse, no regrets. She has said in the past she's glad she didn't win it, the Nobel Prize that is, because now people ask her about it all the time, and they probably wouldn't if she had won it. Now, I think that's maybe just tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but she is a delightful uh, human being, and I couldn't be more pleased to present this interview with a really, truly titanic observational astronomer, experimental astronomer, and someone after my own heart who just has such a cheerful, wonderful disposition. We got into many things, including the uh, aspects of philosophy and even metaphysical existential questions you'll hear at the very end, the so-called final three, thrilling three questions that I ask all my guests to honor me by coming on the podcast. So sit back, enjoy this ride into the impossible with Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Let's go. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome. 
Welcome, everybody, to a very, very special edition of Into the Impossible, featuring a guest um, who is so renowned and so fascinating that I was dying to wait even six months uh, in the making to have a bit of her precious time to spend with us on this day. And actually, we were supposed to record this last week, which would have been December 10th, which is a day that lives in infamy for many scientists as Alfred Nobel's death day. We'll get into that, but it's uh, it's Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Um, I, I hope I can call you Dame, or well, I've never I've never addressed no, somebody as Dame. No, don't call me Dame. <laughs> Jocelyn will do. <laughs> okay, Jocelyn. Well, it's great to uh, great to be with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And I want to open with by addressing the elephant in the room, which has to do with a very simple acronym, LGM. Is it really true? that you thought for a moment that the pulsars, the very first astronomical objects discovered via your brain, not just looking at them in the sky, uh, that you thought they were originally little green men, men, perhaps alien civilization. Was that ever a serious, serious uh, contemplation? No, it was a tongue in cheek nickname that I gave these things. We needed some sort of short name. Mm. You can't talk about you know that funny source we keep seeing at 1919 plus 23 <laughs> <laughs> yeah indeed so um i i was you know ruminating you know last night as i was looking over your, your books and your work and there's a wonderful uh short documentary about you uh in the new york times from earlier this year mm -hmm. i will link to that in the video and, and text description but i was thinking you really did do something quite remarkable perhaps for the first time in human history which is that you used your brain to discover something not just your eyes through a telescope because you made these first discovery uh, of these objects, which we call pulsars to this very day. Um, and I was thinking about all the serendipitous things that had to come about for that to happen, the right wavelength, the right time, the right instrument. Um, and I wonder if you can tell me, are you as fascinated by pulsars now as you were when you discovered them, you know, 54 years ago? Uh, just to backtrack slightly, I think we don't want to imply that nobody else has a brain. <laughs> no, that's true. Although some of my faculty <laughs> colleagues, uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, 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 don't go there. <laughs> um, I haven't worked on pulsars um, since about 1968, but of course I have followed the field and a fascinating field it has turned out to be with a lot of very interesting stuff and a lot of quite tough problems as well, understanding how these things radiate. And <clears throat> what do you think is the most fascinating thing, would you say, about these objects? Are they, is it that they, you know, kind of have this regularity associated with them? Is it that they are the heart of these, you know, corpse-like uh, explosions, massive explosions? Is it their cycle? Or, or is it their very precision, which, which uh, fascinates people most? What do you think is the most valuable aspect of these strange and wonderful new objects that you discovered? They're certainly stretching our physics understanding in many ways. Uh, first of all, they are very dense objects. There's a solar mass of material in a ball that's 10 kilometers radius. So the density is phenomenal and the physics is staggering. Um, how they radiate has proved to be a pretty tough problem. That's really because we're at the extremes in, in every dimension you can think of relativistic, high electric, high magnetic, and so on. So it, that's interesting, but a tough problem that's been close to being cracked. Um, 
And we're beginning to link the pulsars with neutron stars in other environments as well. And, you know, looking back, I, I guess I failed to realize, and it's probably, you know, just my incompetence, but I, I didn't realize you built the, the telescope, that you were mm-hmm. part of the team that built it, as well as yeah. observed with it, as well as analyzed the theory of it. Is that error of kind of, you know, science from beginning to end, from conception, <clears throat> obviously, um, you know, you and your advisor will get into Tony in just a bit, but, but you know, his kind of coming up with some ideas, some funding, you building it, instantiating these ideas, then you discovering this, then you convincing him <laughs> that they're real when he thought they were perhaps a spurious systematic signal. Is that error gone? I, I had a taste of it as a grad student 25 years ago, but I don't see it so much anymore. Is that, is, should that worry us as, as a community? I suspect the era of home-built equipment is passing. We're certainly in, in astrophysics, we're more and more using big facilities, huge telescopes, you know, getting an allocation of time on them with luck. Um, so it is a different way of doing things. But all instrumentation starts with something fairly simple and built in, in your home university laboratories. So that's the way many things start. And when you um, had to take this strip of chart paper to your advisor, to Tony Hewish. Um, he was skeptical at first. And as I recall, a recounting that I heard somewhere on the internet archives, um, you know, you almost missed it. If the, if you had been looking in the wrong place, perhaps 20 minutes or come 20 minutes later, 20 minutes earlier, perhaps you wouldn't have uh, found it again. But what, what was that like? I mean, how did you have the intellectual fortitude to convince a much more senior scientist who's world renowned at that time even, how did you do that? How, what gave you that confidence? Is that something that you were born with? Or is that something by virtue of the fact you had to work so hard to overcome so many barriers you had built up by that time? When did the, re, when did the full Jocelyn Bell burn out? When did that fully come out? I think it took a bit of persistence to, um, first of all, find the things. You know, I, I had miles of paper chart, literally. <laughs> I can't remember whether it was three miles or five miles, but, you know, something like that. And this first signal was occupying about a quarter inch. So it's a very tiny part of the full thing. So I think persistence was actually uh, the main quality. Persistence, persistent, careful work. And looking at the kind of breakdown between theory, experiment, observation, analysis, what appealed to you the most? I remember you said once you got, you know, a, a set of kit of tools, you know, uh, spanners and, and wire cutters and stuff. And, and it was very obvious to you that, that this type of astronomy is very different than other forms of astronomy. What appealed to you the most? Was it being in the field, taking the data, working on the instrument, trying to figure out its peccadilloes, or is there something else? The observation, the data, the writing up of publication, what aspect, sub-aspect of all the things that you do and did is most appealing to you? Well, the data analysis is always exciting, particularly if it's a piece of kit that you yourself have built. Mm. You're actually seeing it working. And half of you is sort of checking that it is working okay. And the other half is looking at what it's delivering in terms of science. So that's always a very satisfying and exciting part of any project. It works. And here's some data, folks. (laughs) And as we uh, go back in your world line, your history, you you um, you were uh, came from Northern Ireland, and and uh, and then eventually made your way to Cambridge, 
And I recall you saying you really battled uh, this notion of the imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I found it uh, interesting. I, I wrote, recently wrote a book with uh, a foreword written by Barry Barish, who won the 2017 Nobel Prize with Ray Weiss and Kip Thorne. And he wrote the foreword. He was very gracious. But he told me he felt the imposter syndrome after winning the Nobel Prize. In other words, when you win a Nobel Prize, I mean, I, I wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize, but I, you know, I didn't come as close to losing it as you did. Uh, I, and and I want to get into that. And my audience has questions to talk about that as well. Uh, but um, but Barry said, when you win a Nobel Prize, you have to sign this little ledger, and the ledger says, you know, yes, I, you know, insert your name, won the Nobel Prize, got my medal, um, got my share of the prize money. <clears throat> And then Barry is very curious. So he looked back, who won this before? And he looked back and he saw Feynman and Fermi. And and then he saw Einstein and he said, I'm not worthy. I'm just not worthy of being in the same group as Einstein. He felt like a fraud. And I told him on the interview when when he did my show, I said, Barry, guess what? Einstein had the imposter syndrome. (laughs) He thought Isaac Newton was a far superior intellect and changed the course of human history more than any person before or since. And I said, furthermore, uh, Isaac Newton lived in awe of Jesus Christ and felt like no, he could never approach him. And so do you think this is endemic um, you know, to all scientists or, or is it more pr- uh, prominent in, in female scientists uh, or underrepresented minorities? Uh, is the imposter syndrome a generic feature of being a scientist that we just have to learn to cope with? Or is it something you can truly overcome? Imposter syndrome can happen to people in any field of work. I was interviewed by a journalist who said, you know, all journalists suffer imposter syndrome. You're only as good as your last piece. Can you do it again? So I think it's probably quite widespread. It's just not talked about very, very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and I think tools to overcome it is is probably to recognize that, right? That it is so widespread and that you're not yeah. the first. Um, yes. And I think, yeah. you know, especially with, with you know, I have daughters and- and I have sons and, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a tendency for us to look at someone like Einstein as Barry Barish himself did and say, I'm not worthy. But at the same time, you know, Einstein wasn't always Einstein. You know, he had, he had grew up like anybody else. He didn't come out knowing, uh, you know, the, uh, the theory of relativity. He had to work on it. Um, oh, I was yeah. Heard- yeah, he had rather a, checkered, rather a checkered student career, hadn't he? Right, that's right. And I also point out that Einstein was right at least at least seven times he had amazing insights into the nature of reality, but he also has about seven or eight huge blunders, not the least of which was about uh, the cosmological constant, um, which he later, to his credit, you know, recanted his uh, disavowal of. But he also didn't believe things like gravitational waves would exist. And in fact, you know, Barry discovered these along with his colleagues and the, and the whole team. Um, and, and so, but we never focus on these kind of foibles of, of great scientists. We just kind of teach it to our students. They came out with the right answer. Here's how it is. Let's rewrite the history books. Um, how would you change the way that we teach people uh, as young people? Is there something we can do to minimize not just the imposter syndrome, but to maximize the, the product of their, of their quality and their quantity, you know, how many of them there are and how, how powerful they can contribute to our knowledge of, of science. Being a woman, of course, you often get put to teach the, the first years, the incoming class, uh, partly because the department is keen to show the young women that there are some women in the department, even if there aren't <laughs> very many. 
So you're you're not just there as a teacher, you're there as a role model and, and to some extent an advisor as well, um, which is okay, you know, once you recognize that. Um, not sure it's recognized by the rest of the department, but they'll get there one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I very much enjoy explaining things uh, to students. Uh, I've done a lot of teaching for a very interesting university in Britain called the Open University, mm. uh, which teaches students at home. They're in jobs and they study at home in the evenings. Mm-hmm. And uh, these days, a lot of it's done over Internet. Um, there used to be um, the lectures, quote, lectures used to be broadcast on television. And there were radio broadcasts and things like that. So that was a very inspiring place to teach because the students were mature adults who somehow had missed out on undergraduate education at the normal time, um, were more than capable of doing it, although they needed some convincing. Um, It was quite scary, you know, for a 40 or 50 year old to decide, right, I'm going to do a degree alongside my job. Um, but a number of them do it. They were superb people to teach. When you think about teaching, also as teaching graduate students, I think a lot of the importance that I see is um, is with you know regard to being a good role model. And I was um, talking earlier this this year with Brian Schmidt, who won the 2011 Nobel Prize, and he was recounting basically an embarrassing set of events where in the collaboration that he was involved with and their competition had a, what he called toxic competition and that he demonstrated really poor form, you know, amongst, uh, you know, scientists for these young people, even though each collaboration made sure to emphasize the work of, you know, he was a postdoc when the work was done. And here he wins a Nobel Prize. His his fellow mentee, um, Adam Reese, wins a Nobel Prize. He was a grad student. And their advisor, Robert Kirsch, Bob Kirsch, didn't, And uh, in contrast to Saul Perlmutter. And so he was saying that they could have done better. They could have really shown this, this uh, behavior that would be more befitting to model for young people. And they failed to do that. And he was embarrassed of that. And now he's a vice chancellor, basically a president. Of, um, of the Australian National University. I wonder, you know, is there, because I, Justin, I always find that there's a, um, there's a fine line, like you don't want to be too close to your students. I think that can be dangerous. Um, you know, there's all sorts of, of stories, especially nowadays, you have to keep a professional balance, but sometimes they come to you with personal issues and so forth. How do you strike that balance? They're looking for wisdom. They're looking for a role model. How do you recommend, you know, people like me balance the kind of authority that we have and the responsibility that we have, but also the need that sometimes a student wants to feel, you know, um, Dennis Shiyama said the most important thing a student needs is love. <laughs> now, obviously it could be very, you know, it should be platonic, but, but how do you balance that kind of, you know, almost familial relationship, but you're also their boss um, for, for advice for faculty now. Interestingly, my first grad student is now my boss. and a very good one he is too it's great it's brilliant to have him in the place that's wonderful (laughs) yeah so in academia a lot of relationships can be quite complicated Uh, and I think it's important to behave ethically whoever you're dealing with Um, whether you think it's a fairly dumb student or whether it's a much respected professor Um, I think too much of science in the Western world has involved rubbishing somebody else, rubbishing their work. Sorry, you'd probably say trashing. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) 
uh, I, and I, I wouldn't do that, to be honest. Mm. But maybe I'm not competitive enough to survive. So, <laughs> um, speaking of competitors that were really kind of like enemies, uh, you grew up, of course, uh, working with, um, learning from uh, Sir Fred Hoyle. You credited his book Frontiers of Astronomy, if I'm not uh, mistaken, with in, inciting this love of astronomy and this curiosity. Mm-hmm. That's when I was a schoolgirl. Yes. And he was a wonderful writer. He was a wonderful uh, scientist and he was a mentor. I actually had on, um, you know, one of his, <clears throat> one of his uh, uh, former students, <laughs> Jayant Narlakar, um, who probably left before you were there, uh, but Jayant is, is still working hard uh, in, in Pune, India. And uh, he recounted, you know, just a real love affair that he had with, with uh, Sir Fred Hoyle. Talk about Fred um, and the combative, bombastic nature that he had, but also this brilliant, gentle side that he had that he would come to your defense. I've always wanted to ask you, um, do you think that the support that he showed was purely driven by scientific integrity? In other words, he was one of the most foremost supporters that you should have won the Nobel, and it wasn't fair you know, at that time. Um, was that only driven by you know support and scientific integrity, or was that partially because of the desire to trash Ryle and 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 maybe Hewish? I, I don't know. Um, can you yeah, comment I on that? I think you're right. I, I'm guessing, but I think you're right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was Hoyle like? Was he was he at, at any time kind of a you know surrogate advisor or confidant, or was it you you would um, right? Because you, I remember. He, yeah, go ahead. I, I think I only really saw him twice in my three years. Um, he lectured to us grad students, gave us two, three lectures. Um, I remember he forgot to convert parsecs cubed to centimeters cubed <laughs> in one of these calculations on the blackboard, <laughs> which we grad students noticed, but didn't tell him. <laughs> Let him go through and he says, oh, I think I've made a mistake somewhere. <laughs> And we said, yeah, two lines up, sir. <laughs> but you also... Uh, he, he was in a different institute, so I didn't have very little to do with him. Mm. But he also mentioned in an interview I saw with you, you know, when um, when Tony gave a lecture to, at Cambridge about your discovery, um, he was in the audience and immediately grasped the significance of it. What, mm. what was that like? Was he was he really this otherworldly? I mean, we, we know him as, as sort of an iconoclastic, bombastic figure, as I say, but um, what was that like to witness? Did you appreciate that at the time or was that appreciated wi- widely at the time? Because it seems to be quite significant. Yeah, I was really impressed because... Tony's introduction, the account of the discovery and what we'd found took about 40 minutes. Mm. Tony ended up by saying he thought these things were white dwarfs because he fancied a model where there's white dwarfs oscillating and launching shocks. And Fred Hoyle was the first to speak at the end of Tony's talk and he said in his best Yorkshire accent, I don't think it's white dwarfs. I think it's supernova remnants. And Fred has hit the right explanation within 40 minutes from cold. Wow. The impressive. So I never met him, um, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, but I did know Giant. I do know Giant Arlakar. And of course, I work at the institution where Jeff and Margaret Burbage work. And frequently, uh, Fred would come here and uh, Giant would still come here even after I arrived in the early 2000s. <clears throat> and I wonder, you know, uh, still to this day, Giant believes that 
the universe didn't have a big bang. And, and I wonder, you know, as a student, I feel like he's so overwhelmed by the brilliance of Fred that he really won't consider any other alternative that Fred could be wrong, even though Fred himself admitted he was wrong on occasion, not, not very often. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, taking aside these things like the Archaeopteryx and all the kind of maybe silly stuff that, that he indulged in, um, do you think that he ultimately hurt his case and his you know, position for the record book, so to speak, not, not so much the Nobel Prize, but just the record books and, and being rightfully considered one of the you know, titans of astronomy of the, of the previous you know, century, at least? What, did he hurt it because of his lack of, you know, a perceived lack of collegiality, per, per se? And, and did that have a negative impact on his students? I guess the thing I'm getting at is, what responsibilities do we have as mentors to our students? Like, if we're taking a flight of fancy, is it fair to them that they have to go on this flight of fancy with us? Right, there's about three questions in that, Brian. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, talking about the grad students and our responsibility towards them. Um, I think some flights of fancy are perfectly in order as long as you make absolutely clear to the student that this is a what if situation. Mm. Um, it's good to explore what ifs, and I think it helps stretch the grad student's education. But that's only a minor excursion away from whatever the main theme of the grad student's project should be, would be my token. Mm -hmm. But absolutely no harm stretching everybody's thinking by occasionally saying, what if? Hmm. And going on some wonderful ramble. Yeah. <laughs> I like to point out, you know, nowadays you're, you're not active on social media, look good for you, but, um, but I like to do a thought experiment. You know, if you were to take uh, a young Scotsman in the 1860s by the name of James Clerk Maxwell, he had come up with these laws that would later be validated, not really much in his lifetime, uh, but he came up with these laws and they're actually correct. You know, these four uh, fundamental equations of, of electromagnetism, but his view of what was you know, causing light to propagate was that there was an ether and that embedded in the ether were these gears and vortices and world. And so um, imagine if, if Karl Popper had existed back then. <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, you know, this is falsified. We don't see worlds and gears. And so your theory is wrong. And I wonder, you know, if the flights of fancy can be um, stymied, stifled, suppressed too soon. And that, yeah, maybe you do need a little bit of that, but, but with the caveats that you just mentioned. So uh, speaking again about, um, uh, about the actual detection, the fact that you built this instrument uh, with, with collaborators and then saw it. Um, I remember- uh, it, was, it was, Brian, it was to Tony's design. It was, it was, yeah. sure, sure yeah. enough. Um, and, and he got the money. Mm -hmm. And that the original intention was to look for uh, quasars, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that was uh, around the time this catalog came about. And of course, uh, uh, Ryle had had assumed that they were, you know, he could use those to provide some evidence for the expanding universe and source counts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and nowadays we don't, we use very different types of radio telescopes to, to look for these signatures. Um, but at that time, you know, it's often said, um, Jocelyn, that, you know, the discovery by Penzias and Wilson killed the steady state. But I think you're actually a counterproof to that. In other words, in 1965, the Big Bang had been, you know, uh, uh, you know, bolstered by the CMB discovery in 1965. You were operating in 1967. So two years later, 
So what was the prevailing attitude? Were you looking for these quasars to, to give ev or to study them in their own right or to maybe provide evidence for the expanding universe? What was your intention or you and Tony, what were your intentions in the, conducting the survey? Um, my intention was to find more quasars because mm. at that stage we only had about 20. Mm. And we knew they were distant. We knew they must be very extreme exotic objects, but 20 is not a good sample. Mm -hmm. That was the main project. And in fact, by the time I'd finished, we had about 200. So that was successful. Mm -hmm. and, <clears throat> and then they would, uh, and to get detoured from that, was it instantaneous? Uh, I remember you saying once that, the most important you know, piece of evidence was finding the second pulsar, not the first one, because <laughs> uh, that really convinced you that they were real. And I think that's true. I mean, if you look at LIGO, they really didn't go public until they had two events, um, mm -hmm. you know, black hole mergers. Um, how hard or easy was it to tear yourself away from the intended research goal? You know, did you worry it would delay your thesis, <laughs> your graduation? H how did it affect you to switch completely serendipitously to a completely different, literally alien field? Well, it involved the same data. So the data I was collecting served both, mm. which was handy. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, by the time the significance really sunk in and was accepted around the world, um, of course, there was a lot of you know publicity, you know, and and a lot of in fact it was was sexist and and kind of focusing on your measurements and 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 your appearance and so forth and so on and and yet um, my late great colleague here at UC San Diego, Margaret Burbage, she rejected famously prizes that were only allowed to go to women. Um, what would what would you say to Margaret? Like she when when she rejected the Annie Jump Cannon Award or because she she didn't believe awards should go specifically based on one's gender. Um, did you, I mean, obviously she's entitled to her opinion or she was uh, when she was alive, but, but what do you, what do you make of that sentiment that there are people that say we shouldn't prioritize, you know, gender and, and even as, as you're doing now, which I, I commend uh, with your breakthrough prize, um, um, you know, our winnings. To a woman scientifically proven to be the real deal, Jocelyn Bell Burnell. That you've turned that towards the IOP and, and dedicated towards uh, underrepresented minorities, as we call them. Do you do you feel there's an argument against such things, or do you feel like no, it's necessary to do um, even even at this at this time? I think one of the significant factors in the discovery of pulsars was that I was an outsider. Mm. I was not a young male. I was not from the affluent southeast of Britain. I had not been to an expensive school. I had not done my first bachelor's degree at Oxford or Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And so I think that diversity is important. And that's what I would focus on. Try and get a much more diverse scientific workforce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to incentivize that... Uh, I wonder, you know, nowadays, of course, you can't get a job in America, at least, without, um, you know, almost an equal amount in the University of California has put on uh, contributions to equity, diversity, inclusivity. That's part of your your package, and it's held up alongside with your teaching and your contributions to research. And, you know, my concern sometimes is I don't know anybody who says that they're a sexist. Like, <laughs> they just don't say it. And we have all this training, and and maybe they are, maybe they're not. But I often feel, to be honest with you, that that you know things are getting better. I mean, we went from 
Margaret being the only female professor here. And now we've got, you know, four or five in, in astronomy alone and it's out of a group of 12, you know, or 13. So it's, it's quite almost exactly equitable and it's, it needs to get better, but it will. Um, but I feel like we're kind of paying the price for the bad behavior of the generation that you're describing that you had to contend with. How, how, how should we balance that? Those of us who are raised, you know, not to be sexist and, and it's sort of in our, we, we can't conceive of it in the same way that it was commonplace. They used to hoot and holler at you. You know, when you came into class, you've, you've spoken about that. We, that's, that's completely anathema to everything we, we do nowadays. So mm-hmm. I, I, we're, we're kind of riding this exponential tale of maybe past behavior that was, that was really quite sexist. Um, how should we approach that now? Um, is it, is it, is it necessary to overcorrect in a sense or, or Will it naturally take care of itself as more and more women get into the workforce and get into the educational force, so to speak? I think the question you have to ask yourself is, um, if you didn't have that arrangement, at what rate would women be getting into the workforce? Mm -hmm. Adequate. My hunch is it needs a bit of a push. Mm -hmm. It's not a permanent push. It's a temporary push. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, And... I think, you know, nowadays, of course, you're, you're, um, you know, in, in your retirement, I said, I should say, uh, you've turned, you know, a long time ago away from, from pulsars. Can you say like what things just as, um, just as a scientist, are, are you most interested in? It doesn't have to be in astronomy, but what kinds of things fascinate you, intrigue you? And, and what advice would you give to a new up and coming, uh, you know, PhD student who's just eager and she, she just wants to, you know, learn as much as possible. What's the most fascinating thing if you were to start your graduate school career um, right now? What would you advise such a person? When I was an undergraduate, my final year advisor was Ron Drever. Ah. Mm-hmm. And he was a very, very stimulating tutor to, advisor to have. And I made a mental note to watch any field that Ron worked in because it would probably go places. <laughs> and not long after that, he got into gravitational radiation. So I've been watching the development of gravitational radiation um, with, with interest. Indeed, I used to lecture on it to our grad students when I first went to Oxford about 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. They treated it as a bit of a joke. <laughs> As the years went by, it got more and more serious. And then when gravitational radiation was actually detected, the theoreticians decided they had to teach the course. Mm. <laughs> Interesting developments there. Yes. Um, I, I would say the opening up of a new spectrum is extremely important, and that'll be a good area to watch. Whether you want to work in it or just watch it is, a, is another question. That's right. And the thing that's happening in general in astrophysics is the time domain is opening up. So not only do we have gravitational wave events, we have events in all sorts of other objects, flares and things like that, uh, bursts and so on. So there is a huge amount happening within time domain. Mm. And I find that very, very exciting. Mm. Very good. <clears throat> so now I want to turn to your uh, wonderful monograph, <clears throat> your um, your book, which is called A Quaker Astronomer Reflects, colon, Can a Scientist Be Religious? Well, I think both of you and myself are scientists, so and we're both religious. Um, so I want to talk about this because I found your, um, your, your book quite unique because most scientists will say, well, 
I'm basically an agnostic and I don't really, you know, believe that there is no God. Maybe there is no God. Or, um, and I always say to such people, well, and I, actually I had Freeman Dyson was my, the first guest I ever had on this podcast. And he said, I'm an agnostic, but it's a great mystery. I love, and I said, well, Freeman, how do you differentiate yourself from an atheist? Because you're saying you don't practice. So if an alien, intelligent, little green man <clears throat> were watching you, Freeman, uh, it would say, uh, you don't go to the same church that Richard Dawkins doesn't go to. So how exactly are you different from an atheist in practice? And I find that almost none of my colleagues, many of whom are, you know, uh, uh, you know, profess to be agnostic, very few will profess to be believe, you know, theists. And, and even I myself don't claim I'm a strict theist in the, in the classical sense of, you know, biblical, um, you know, realism, but you have a unique perspective in that you believe, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't believe in, you know, kind of the God of creation of the universe uh, and instilling and instantiating all the laws of nature, but you do believe in a personal God. It's almost the exact opposite of many people um, that, that I've encountered. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Is that common in Quaker, um, in, the, in the Quaker practice? Is there, is there something unique about you? So first of all, maybe we'll start. I'm sorry for the long-winded question. I do that on time to time. Can you explain Quakerism? We've all, I've had on at least one Quaker, I believe Matt Stanley, and we talked about Eddington. Um, but, but can you say a little bit about Quaker for those that aren't um, familiar? Is it just like ordinary, doctrinated, Catholic, Christianity, et cetera? Uh, there's a huge spectrum of Quakerism in the United States. So um, there isn't a simple answer to this. Um, the kind of Quakerism I'm involved with does not have priests or bishops or archbishops. Mm. Um, reckons that anyone, everyone can from time to time be called to do that kind of uh, ministry. But in the United States, um, as uh, European people migrated westward, um, the Quakers gradually evolved a bit, and you'll now find there are Quaker churches that have a service on a Sunday that is led by somebody. Mm. That wouldn't be the case in Europe, for instance. So there's now a huge spectrum of Quakerism in the world, um, some with pastors and leaders and some deliberately without. <laughs> And you talk in that book about your working hypothesis of a living, loving God who works through people and calls us to hope and ethical action. Um, so what is the practice like in practice? Is it uh, for you? Is it is it a daily? Uh, we'll get to your studies of the Mishnah. <laughs> uh, I'm fascinated by as a Jew. But um, what is it like on a daily basis is uh, for you just personally? Is it is there prayer? Is there is there uh, scripture? Is there meditation? How does it, how do you instantiate it? Um, the Quaker worship is sitting in, oh, the Quaker worship that I'm used to mm -hmm. is sitting in silence, um, cogitating, listening, feeling, uh, and, and sometimes you get useful thoughts which you share with the other people sitting with you. Um, and I will do that two or three times a week, typically. Mm. <laughs> a lot of it on Zoom at the moment, which is, is not so easy, but um, it's <laughs> sitting with people, you, you pick up better what's going on than on Zoom. You miss a lot of the signals when you're on Zoom. Absolutely. But better than nothing. 
Yeah. And I wonder if that ties into, you know, one of the biggest challenges to a personal God for many people is this issue of theodicy, you know, of, of why do, you know, bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? By the way, which is more annoying to you when something good happens to an enemy or when something bad happens to a friend? I don't, don't have an opinion on that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, so the problem of theodicy is an old one. Uh, you know, how can a personal, just, loving God, as as you um, you know, ascribe to, how can that be compatible with the suffering, the natural disasters, the viruses, the the earthquakes, and and so forth? Um, how how do you reconcile that, or is that something you know that will always be? an ongoing part of your working hypothesis. And, and in other words, Justin, how could you falsify your working hypothesis in a sense? Look, that's that's about four questions in yes. one breath. Sorry, I, I, I told you, I, I should have warned you beforehand. I, I am long-winded. <laughs> Sorry. So theodicy first, and then, um, and then can you falsify your working hypothesis? Let's do that. No, I can't falsify the working hypothesis and don't try to. Mm. Um, quick answer to that. Um, no, sorry, I've lost the thread where you started. Well, I, I guess, yeah, the notion of the, the personal God and incompatibility with, with bad and happening to good people, et cetera, is that, is that something that could be a permanent barrier uh, that you choose to overlook? Or is it something that, you know, is an ongoing, you know, struggle and that we just have to, we have to, we have to cope with? You know, you've made an assumption. Mm. God's there to smooth the path for you. Mm. And I don't think that assumption's right. Hmm. So what does the personal God do? I mean, he didn't create the universe, and as I understand it, in your conception. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I should say, in, uh, so, so what does he or it do? Um, help you along the route by um, offering guidance is too tangible. Um, but if you focus on God with luck, your decisions will be kind to other humans as well. Hmm. So, yes, it's the process more than just the entity. <clears throat> in Judaism, as you know, you know, we believe in the twofold manifestation of God, that God created the universe in you know, Genesis 1.1. And then let us out of Egypt um, in, in Exodus 1.1. <laughs> in other words, that there's a personal nature that God did intervene in the events of human history. And as a scientist, I, you know, I will often get asked, how can a serious scientist believe in the Bible? So I'm going to ask you, well, you're not as Bible-focused maybe as I am, but, but maybe you are. I don't know. Um, how do you reconcile that? I, I have some, some answers, but my audience wants to hear what you would say. Uh, I don't have an issue there. Mm. don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> um, you mentioned in at the end of the book that you enjoy uh, leading and, and participating in Bible study, which is loosely based on the Jewish Midrash. I, I found that fascinating. How, mm-hmm. how did an Irish, Irish woman <laughs> uh, who's a Quaker, how did she come to even know what the Midrash is? So first, explain your uh, understanding of the Mishnah, and then what does it do for you or what do you do for it, so to speak? <laughs> Um, this I was introduced to at a big Quaker meeting in the US, I can't remember now which one it was, um, where 
in a study group, it was suggested that we read together a passage of the Bible. We each took the role of one of the characters and then wrote up our diary or wrote to our mother describing what had happened in that story from the perspective of the character we had assumed. Mm. And I found that extremely useful because it, it rounded out a lot of the Bible story. And so something that uh, I found very, very useful and grateful to have been introduced to it. Yeah. So, yeah, for those that may not be so aware or so ecumenical as Jocelyn, uh, this is a this is a set of rabbinical collection of stories that kind of fill in the gaps. I mean, some of them are, are pretty famous. There's a there's a notion that even my kids will learn about that, you know, Abraham was put into a fiery furnace and that was one of his tests um and and yet it's never mentioned in the in the torah and the old testament and that comes from the midrash and it kind of explicates these missing links so to speak between <laughs> in the story and then the talmud itself is really a collection of case law and interpretation of of these sentences like you know thou shalt not murder like what does that mean or an eye for an eye that's the perfect one an eye for an eye you know could kill somebody uh but it's not what it means and so there has to be some interpretation or kosher and stuff like that so i, I found it very very interesting and that you brought this to um to a religious audience i mean this is what it was for in the quakers and and as i said earlier you know eddington is perhaps one of the most famous scientists who is quaker um and that you know is believed to play some role in his life as a scientist um so i love the fact that you you basically say that you don't blame god um you know for kind of the the uh the workings the orchestration of the universe but you also don't give god credit um and, and oftentimes we'll hear that from Einstein, like, I believe in the beauty of, the, of God as, as evidenced by the organization of the world. But you don't feel the same way as Einstein, right? Mm. So um, uh, the other parts of that book that, that are so delightful are really the description of the modern astronomer's understanding of the universe and how the universe is is uh, depicted, not necessarily as an organization. Did you find people were receptive to it? Was it was it um, did it cause tension? Uh, you know, when you when you there, I imagine there might be people that don't believe as you do, even within the Quaker faith, right? Um, so, how, what was the reaction to this book? It was a it's the text of a lecture that I gave. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't originally a book. Mm -hmm. um, uh, gave it at a gathering in Australia to Australian Quakers. And it seemed to go down quite well. Um, had a number of interesting conversations following it, following the talk. Um, I do remember it being incredibly hot. We were in Canberra and I forget what the temperature was, but it was very, very hot. And there were fires further inland. You know, mm. it was Australian summer. It was... Mm -hmm. So I think people took, took more than a polite interest in it, um, but there were other things going on at that conference, mm -hmm. around that conference. Interesting. Okay, so now we have questions from my audience, and uh, apologies if, uh, and if you don't want to answer any of them, please feel free. Uh, but Henry uh, Selden says he's disgusted after reading your history about you not getting the proper credit for the work you did. 
He wants this corrected and procedures put in place to ensure this disgrace never happens again. His question, has what we've learned about Radio Pulsar since you discovered them changed your perception of what they are? Do we know for sure what they are and how they form? Thank you for all that you've done to promote our learning. I think we've got pretty good understanding of what pulsars are. Where we are still needing more work is how they produce these beams of radio waves that then swing around the sky. So we see a pulse each time the beam swings past us. Um, we've got this bit right, but what the beam is, there's still work going on. It's incredibly extreme physics because there's large magnetic fields, large electric fields, rapid rates of rotation, um, and in the star itself, extremely high densities. Um, it's hitting the extreme in every dimension you can imagine. So it's tough physics. Indeed it is. Uh, next, uh, next audience member says, his name is Tim Bo. Do you mind if we call them Belsars in your honor? Should we change our name from Pulsar to Belsar? Uh, far too late to do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then he says, I've seen one recent, um, uh, one recent <clears throat> uh, commentary from a documentary that he saw your role shines brighter in the way that she handled uh, the snub by the supervisor on the Nobel Committee. My respect for Fred Hoyle likewise increased when I heard this objection. Um, okay, so we, we basically covered those uh, already. Okay, uh, Kenny Wayne Beek asks you, I would like her to expand upon her quote. I believe it would demean Nobel Prizes if they were awarded to research students, except in very exceptional cases, and I do not believe this is one of them. Do you still stand by that, is his question? Largely, yes, but um, I had to handle a lot of very tricky politics around about the time of the Nobel Prize. Um, so yeah, I think that's all I'd say. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, and then, uh, so it, he asks, uh, did you initially think the radio signals were observed were extraterrestrial civilization? We talked about that. But let me ask you a different question. In the U.S., at least, there's been a resurgence in interest in what are called UAPs, UFOs. Um, first question, do you believe that there is um, that there's any evidence for extraterrestrial life of any kind, um, uh, technological or not, in our universe, or let's just say in our galaxy? I don't think we've seen any sign of life yet that would convince me, no. Would you say that it's therefore not terribly uh, wise to, to make statements that there has to be life out there because the universe is so big? And in other words, uh, I guess a version of the Fermi paradox, do you believe there is life or do you believe the question, do you believe is, is, is um, insufficient or inaccurate? The universe is very, very, very large. Mm. I think it would be a bit stupid to say there is no other life in the universe. There will be no other life. There has been no other life. Mm. It is so very, very large. Um, I, I think being that dogmatic is unwise. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then the next question is, what is uh, one cosmic mystery you'd like to see demystified? Uh, dark energy, dark matter, inflation, or something else, all of which you talk about in uh, Quaker Scientist. 
I haven't got a particular favourite. I'm looking forward to the Vera Rubin telescope coming online because I think there's a lot more in the time domain, things that vary, um, that we have yet to find. And I think that's probably going to deliver it to us in bucketfuls. It's going to be a fantastic telescope. So it's what I think will be the next interesting area. A complication is that the analysis will have to be done by computers. Hmm. Computers have to be programmed by people who think they know what they're looking for. So, you know, if our computers had been programmed, if we had had computers to program, would pulsars have been discovered? Hmm. I wonder. <laughs> Very good. Okay, there are other questions that have to do with uh, the folks that don't believe pulsars really exist. Um, and I guess that might be a symptom of, you know, there are people that believe that uh, the earth is flat, uh, that birds aren't real and all, all sorts of other things. How do you handle skeptics, like pure skeptics, pulsars don't exist. How do you convince, as, as Hillel, Rabbi Hillel said, how do you convince someone while standing on one foot? I'm not sure it's worth trying, to be honest. Okay, fair enough. And I will not belabor at the point. Live, um, live and um, let live, as they say. <laughs> well, we have now reached the point where we'd like to discuss the existential questions of life, including what I call my thrilling three final questions that have to do with telling your full story in the context, the challenges, the action and the epiphanies that you've gone through in your legendary career and you continue to do and you continue to inspire. And I want to connect them uh, to the questions that I ask all of my guests, if you are willing to, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, would you be willing to go into the impossible and answer these final three questions? I don't know what they are, Brian. So <laughs> let's see how we get on. All right, we'll delete them if you don't like. Okay, the first one has to do with your ethical will, not your material will. In Judaism, we have a desire that People should live to be the age that Moses was when he died, 120 years old, and like Moses, give over a will of ethical content. And, uh, and this is uh, sort of originally done by the patriarchs in the Bible, but nowadays they're for everybody, uh, including um, you know, people of all different stripes, professions, etc. So I want to ask you, what, what sort of wisdom... Uh, would you bequeath? You've already been so generous and gracious and, and bequeathing tons of literal uh, uh, financial uh, wealth to future generations. But what wisdom or advice would you give to future generations when you leave this mortal coil, as Shakespeare said, at the age of 120? I hope I don't last that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you're right. We hope you will. Um, I, I would say... Try not to waste your life. Make good use of the time given you. Um, be courageous. You can be overcautious. Be generous. Be kind. Be thoughtful. Very good. Okay, that wasn't so bad. Um, the next one has to do with uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's uh, thrilling film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't know if you've seen it or not, uh, but the movie version of it. It depicts some hominids in Africa, and they come upon this monolith, this huge structure, and they don't know what to do with it, and they hit it with a, with a bone, and, <laughs> and then later it appears in space, and it's on the moon, and it seems to be sort of a time capsule or, or some sort of advice or billboard 
placed by a civilization millions or billions of years ago, but meant to be discovered when human beings can appreciate it and unlock it. And maybe we haven't gotten to that point yet, I think is what the film depicts. And it reminds me of uh, Richard Feynman, who said, you know, if you had to uh, recreate civilization after some cataclysm, what piece of uh, knowledge or, or, or would you put on a time capsule that really bespeaks to what human beings have accomplished? And he, of course, talked about the, the atomic hypothesis. What would you put on a time capsule now, not 100 years from now, but a billion years from now? What, what would you say most signifies the scientific heights that humanity as a whole has achieved as of this day? Gosh, I've never thought about that one. Um, I don't think I can answer that. I'd need, you know, to go away and ponder it. Okay, maybe uh, in part two someday, if you'll grace me again. Um, the last question also has to do with Sir Arthur C. Clarke. And as you know, he had many laws, one of which I open every podcast with, including this one, him saying in his own voice, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. He also said things like, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And then the third thing he did was give me the name of this podcast because he said the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And I like to ask that question of you uh, by saying, what, what kind of mysterious thing perplexed you as a 20-year-old or maybe a 30-year-old as a young person? And what epiphany did you have um, that gave you the courage to go into the impossible and push the boundaries and the limits of what seemed to be impossible at first. Basically, advice to your former self. I think I've been pushing boundaries all my life. It's been hard being a female who wants to have a career of my, a female of my age who wants to have a career. Um, let alone a career in science, let alone a career in physics. So I actually think I've done a lot of pushing of boundaries. Um, the only thing I would want to add is you need to be a bit subtle in how you push the boundaries. Mm. Go straight at them with a battering ram. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, I think it does. I think it does. And, and the fact that you are... Um, so willing to be vulnerable and to talk about your experiences with honesty and courage. Uh, it really has served as an inspiration. I, I've, you know, I can't believe I'm talking to you and it's been, it's been such a dream and such a delight um, to learn from you and to learn how to teach from you in a certain sense, the graciousness that you have, the brilliance that you have, and the dogged determination of an experimentalist um, who saw it things through from the first wire snips that she ever got um, all the way up through a discovery for all time. And I just want to thank you for spending so much of your valuable time with me and my audience. And I, I, I can't wait to see where you go next. And, and hopefully we'll get to chat again in person, maybe someday. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you. It's a delight. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap. 
I hope you enjoyed this illuminating conversation with a phenomenal observational astronomer, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who truly did deserve to win the Nobel Prize. Maybe she'll get it. I don't know. If uh, I ever get a chance to nominate winners again, she would surely be on my shortlist. Um, as she has been for many, many years for millions of astronomers around the world. She is truly an inspirational figure. So I would really enjoy you to contribute a little astronomical token of your appreciation on wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go to Apple Podcasts, you can go to Spotify, you can go to Audible, and many other applications and leave a constellation of hopefully five stars and rate the podcast. On Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a review. And if you do, I read each and every one. They're coming in fast and furious lately. Got almost 350 written reviews. And here is the most recent one that I just received on this past Wednesday uh, from someone named Salk, Salky Convert. <laughs> Hope I'm pronouncing your name Salky correctly. First saw Dr. Keating on Lex's podcast, and this is a thoroughly entertaining podcast. Dr. Keating and guests serve up accessible conversations for us lay people while also cranking out more technical ones that will satisfy his students and colleagues. Fascinating topics and conversations all around. Well, Salky, I really cannot appreciate this more than I can say. I don't know what else to say. That's exactly the vibe I'm going for. I'm trying to communicate advanced topics in language that lay people can understand, but also for my more uh, technically uh, acclimatized colleagues and friends and people that are just interested in learning. I get so many emails, so many feed uh, messages on my email list, which you should all subscribe to, briankeating.com. It's free, comes out twice a month, no big deal. Easy to join, easy to leave. And uh, that's the vibe I'm going for, both here on the audio podcast and on my video channel, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, where I present short form short form explainer videos about the deepest topics in astronomy, cosmology, physics, philosophy, and we'll have one soon coming up on the meaning of life and free will in a universe of seemingly super determined possibilities. So I hope you'll tune in over there, subscribe over there. And, uh, and you'll also see my latest video, which is about the properties of neutrons and how they contribute to life in the universe as we know it, and of course forming the very core of these magnificent objects that Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell just entertained us with. So for now, signing off, yours truly, Brian Keating, from Into the Impossible, and thanking you, and until we meet again, I hope that you will ABC always be curious. Mm -hmm.